A good evening, everyone, and welcome to still another adventure and program of Money Talks and Bullshit Walks. Philadelphia from 1980 to present, green to Kenny. Uh, I, I, everybody is wondering uh, where I've been and Joe has been, my, my partner in crime. Uh, so Joe, say hello. Uh, hello, people. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, where I've been is in police parlance, IOD, that's injured on duty. Um, so uh, what I'd like to say is that we have John Cromer with us for a second go around about housing and the homelessness uh, problems in Philadelphia that go back a ways, but John uh, has been involved very uh, as an administrator uh, in the uh, Rendell administration going back to the early 90s. But I do want to point out to our podsters out there that our podcast is about urban legends. And uh, you can view us as people who are just sitting around a Zoom camera like Joe, myself, and John, and talking trash about the city that we love, the city that will always love you back, Philadelphia. And we are happy to be with you. And we are happy that if the, uh, the truth comes out in our urban legends, so be it. Um, and so and with that, let's, let's get started. Again, I'd like to welcome John Cromer back. And John, let's get started uh, because maybe some of our former posters don't remember how you got into uh, the whole housing business, so to be, poor and homeless housing in Philadelphia. I know the history goes back into the 90s. Um, so why don't you uh, just give us a little thumbnail of how you got into it and what you thought of it when you got into it. Great. Glad to be here. And although I'm a uh, dinosaur from the 20th century, I think it's really <laughs> important for people to get an understanding of how did Philadelphia get this way? You know, where did council prerogative come from? You know, how did the homeless housing groups get started and do what they're doing now for better or worse? Where did the uh, city policies uh, related to, in this instance, North Philadelphia come from? So it's great to have this opportunity. I really uh, had no formal training or work experience in housing other than work as an associate for a firm called Urban Partners, which is still in business now. And it was founded by uh, John Andrew Gallery, who had been the first director of housing under the Rizzo right. administration. Right, that and goes way back. During his tenure, which was 1970s and ending with Bill Green's administration, he had been interested in some innovations that he hoped that nonprofit groups or developers would take on so that he, as part of the city administration, could support them. But a lot of his ideas never sort of emerged in the private and nonprofit sector. So he decided that he would form a consulting firm that would work on some of those ideas. And so way back in the 1980s, for example, he was thinking about creating a uh, public bank or a community bank that would do the kinds of things that Derek Green in city council is talking about with respect to uh, public bank. So ideas like that. Um, a lot of the clients of Urban Partners 
were and still are nonprofit groups, community development uh, corporations, and groups that are doing neighborhood planning. And so I had an opportunity to work with them. I'd previously been employed by the city during Gallery's tenure, but as kind of a middle management person. And in a way similar to him, I had some bright ideas about housing policies. And when Ed Rendell became a candidate for mayor after Wilson Good's second term of office was ending, I thought that Rendell might be the kind of person who would pay attention to my brilliant ideas. And so I signed up with uh, the Rendell campaign as a volunteer early in the campaign year. And as it happened, nobody was really working on housing. And this was, you know, 1991. And housing was not that big a deal as it is now. Now, I think it's considered in many ways central to a lot of other uh, issues. But in that time, you know, jobs, the closing of the Navy Yard, uh, the future of Center City, the need for private investment, you know, those are issues now. But at that time, they were uh, issues, I think, to the exclusion of uh, issues like housing, which... Yeah, and and the homeless issue, um, I guess, started to really pop its head uh, into the public eye around that time. I mean, uh, I think we can all agree that there was a homeless problem, but I think it began to get on the public's uh, radar in the late 80s and early 90s. That's right. It really dates back to the Reagan administration right. in the 1980s and the cutoffs of uh, federal funding and uh, to some extent state funding for uh, uh, people who subsequently became homeless. Yes. So I hooked up with the campaign and I uh, had an opportunity to you know, meet with people that wanted to influence the next administration, draft position papers, and so on. I really uh, didn't get acquainted with Rendell as a candidate because, again, he was focusing on other priorities. So we met maybe once. Uh, what was clear was that he wanted to get rid of the incumbent housing director who had uh, rubbed some people that Rendell respected the wrong way. And so he wanted to get uh, rid of Ed Schwartz, um, who was the housing director at that time. And he had uh, an idea that he would recruit a guy named Paul Brophy, who was sort of a national superstar in the housing world. He was co-director of a group called the Enterprise Foundation, which is in existence now, is formed by James Rouse, the developer of the gallery in the Baltimore Avenue, Baltimore uh, waterfront. And so he was related to Willard Rouse. That's right. Uh, Uncle. And, yeah, and we, we kind of discussed in one of our shows how Willard broke the uh, broke the uh, Billy Penn rule, uh, the handshake, and he built those towers that were uh, the Liberty Place towers that went above the uh, to City Hall, Billy Penn hat. Right. At, at that time, uh, the gallery, which was a creation of James Rouse, uh, he had been up and running and uh, was doing quite well. But the Enterprise Foundation was a subsidiary of that. Paul Brophy was the uh, um, co-founder. He had grown up in Philadelphia, but there was no way that Paul Brophy was going to come to Philadelphia and become a housing director. So Inauguration Day was approaching, and there was no uh, replacement for Ed Schwartz. So I was asked to uh, fill in for what we all thought would be a few days, but ended up being, uh, you know, eight years plus another year and a half with uh, John Street. And 
the thing that I think is worth mentioning is that uh, Rendell really gave me a chance to show what I could do. You know, I was really a nobody, but I was a nobody who had a lot of experience in the infrastructure, uh, in the housing infrastructure with which he was totally unfamiliar. So he gave me an opportunity to work with people in city government that I had been very well acquainted with to work with community-based organizations that I already knew through my past experience and really show that I could, uh, I could run the agency, which really was an atypical way for a person in his position to uh, uh, make a hiring decision. So I am really grateful for that. And I'm not the only one who benefited in that way. So by the time you got the job, John, the federal government through the Reagan administration really eviscerated community development block grants and other money coming to urban areas and all. What kind of a budget did you inherit it when you showed up? Well, it was still tens of millions of dollars. It was a lot of money and it was federal money that came in reliably primarily through a program called the Community Development Block Grant, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, funding that went directly to a city government rather than to the redevelopment authority. And the amount that you got was based on factors like you know, population, poverty level, uh, housing vacancy, and so on. So it was formula-based so that every year you as uh, a city with a lot of uh, um, uh, poverty and housing needs could count on getting a lot of funding. But compared to uh, the needs that had to be addressed, it really uh, was insufficient to uh, make fundamental changes. The other issue with respect to Philadelphia in 1992 was the fact that the real estate market was dead. And if you walked around downtown at the beginning of the pandemic, remembering what you saw, you know, the empty buildings, the empty streets, it was like that every week and every month during the 1990s. And this uh, had been going on, the disinvestment, the uh, population decline, the increase in housing abandonment. This had been going on since the um, 1950s. And in 1992, nobody could say, we're gonna turn around. You know, after the turn of the century, uh, Center City is gonna be revitalized. Um, we're gonna have a lot of new investment. The private market is gonna return. Um, people are gonna be paying lots of money for vacant houses and vacant lots. Uh, south of South Street, nobody would have believed a pitch like that. So, and the same can be seen north, north, exactly. north of Spring Garden, too. Exactly. So different. So the issue was really not bringing back the private market. In uh, basically, what was being done was publicly subsidized in one way or another. And so the question was, how do you use the federal money, which again was substantial, but was not comparable to the 1960s urban renewal money, where you could uh, you know, um, carve out uh, blocks of the city and do Society Hill, for example. Right. So, so in the early 90s, how did you identify or what were the factors that you or I guess you and then Rendell put in as, as the priorities uh, for housing and where did the, the homeless issue fit into that? 
Well, one of them really, you know, working with nonprofit organizations and community development uh, corporations and homeless housing organizations was very important. And at that time, Project Home, uh, Sister Mary Scullion, um, and People's Emergency Center, um, Joe's employer, were just getting started and they had delivered. They had started to deliver. They had done some good stuff. They were well organized. They had a professional staff tiny but effective and they had showed that they could do uh, they could get things done so one of the policies that we uh, supported with respect to what nonprofits was um, we'll fund you for your next project um, and if you get it up and running and you've got the financing together and the construction is starting then we'll look at your proposal for the one after that so that you can think about if you're going to if you deliver reliably, you can think about having something going on every year um, and be assured that uh, uh, funding is going to be available uh, through the city for that. So that worked really well for groups, again, like People's Emergency Center and Project Home, which knew how to do their stuff um, and to have that assurance um, really made uh, uh, made a big difference making that commitment was possible only because of the redevelopment authority, which uh, was responsible for underwriting all of these projects and scrutinizing the financing and doing the due diligence. And under uh, Noel Eisenstadt, who was recruited um, by Rendell from Atlantic City, um, and who is not Mr. Charming, um, who could be very hard to work with, but had a very capable staff um, who could report to you and say, this is gonna work. And you could feel confidence in that. That was really critical because during previous administrations and there had been multiple housing directors before me, there had been housing scandals, you know, where yes. money had been mismanaged and a project failed and somebody got paid off, um, that stopped. And it was because of uh, Noel and uh, his capable staff, it really made a huge difference. We can move along. I, I kind of would like to talk about how we landed into this homeless because you described all these uh, empty houses, uh, abandoned houses, whatever you want to call them. And they were all over the city. One of the places where Joe and I were talking and, and we read some of your material had to do with uh, the, the homeless prob problems in Kensington. And how did that sort of get on your, your screen and your radar? Because they seem to be outside of what or how you wanted to address things in a more uh, straight line. This was uh, because um, the city had been in decline for decades and uh, there were new problems that were emerging for which there was no instant solution. There were a lot of ideas that emerged and some of them were great. Some of them needed to be worked on. Some of them were terrible. Um, and it's always a good idea to listen to the community, to listen to neighborhood voices. But sometimes the ideas that the community supports are terrible. Um, and so it's really important to try to uh, um, be open to uh, new ways of thinking, but also to exercise some, some responsibility 
if you're in the public sector and to make some decisions about what to support and what not to support. In the early 1990s, there were thousands of vacant houses in Philadelphia. Some of them were properties that had been foreclosed on by HUD, the federal government, through a federal housing program. Some of them were city surplus properties, city-owned houses that, again, had been acquired for some program or had been made available with some uh, mortgage financing that failed. And at the same time, the population of homeless people on the street was growing. And so one person whose name you would recognize uh, said in one public forum, look, we've got, you know, 2,000 homeless families and we've got 10,000 vacant houses. The solution should be obvious. And well, the solution wasn't so obvious because homeless people need more than housing. And putting a homeless person in a vacant house that needs a substantial amount of investment to rehabilitate and also dealing with the causes of homelessness that uh, created the, uh, the crisis for a family in the first place requires a network of support that needs to be available. It's not as easy as uh, giving houses away. During that time, John Street and his brother Milton Street uh, were housing activists. This was before they became elected officials and they were very supportive of squatter movements that involved primarily uh, HUD houses, uh, housing and urban development, program houses that had been vacated and moving families into them and then demanding that HUD turn over the title to those houses. To the those family. problems that you outlined, the social problems, still existed. Um, it, I mean, prior to, to Street's election, those, those, those problems, those social problems, so that disconnect, if you will, still existed. Well, I think the... Uh, uh, the pitch that um, the Street Brothers and others made was, we know people who have skills, um, who want to go to work. They can help fix up these houses, give us a chance to show what we can do. And uh, so some deals were made with the federal government, and I don't think the outcomes of those agreements were studied very carefully, but I expect some of them worked out well, and some of them didn't, because I expect that some of the squatters were not people with severe social needs. They might might have been unemployed people, you know, who had been evicted, who, you know, knew how to do uh, carpentry or knew uh, how to do uh, some of the fix-up that was needed. Also, a lot of those houses were in better condition than uh, some of the vacant houses you see now. So devil's advocate, I think uh, that might have worked in some cases. But the experience that I had with other groups, a couple of other groups, was a demand to uh, give away houses that the city controlled and also to provide uh, rental assistance to these groups so that um, there could be a stream of income that would enable these families to uh, maintain a household uh, in a viable way. 
So this is all at the beginning of the uh, Rendell administration when these sorts of things came up about uh, the, the Philadelphia homes being deeded over and uh, a revenue stream being uh, created from the city to, uh, to these uh, families. And your, your reaction was? That's right. And one group in particular did occupy my office and tried to uh, take it over. Something like that had happened in New York City, and they wanted to uh, camp out in the office indefinitely. That wasn't going to happen. Um, and they also demand, demanded, you know, uh, uh, title to properties and rental assistance through this so-called Section 8 program, which was administered by the Philadelphia Housing Authority. And they wanted the funding given to them, the organization, so that they could run the program. And this was all sort of a community control kind of concept, but the making a commitment to do that would jump them ahead of other families that had been waiting for assistance and had already been uh, in line for the assistance and clearly had the need to uh, um, uh, to, to be eligible for uh, the funding and the other supports. So I think the view of these groups was, look, this is a crisis. We're showing people who are in need of housing. You're the person who needs to do something about it. And so to say, we just don't have the money, you know, other people are in line ahead of you. That's not a very powerful response, but that was a reality. And, you know, to some extent, what these groups were doing was theater, you know, for them to organize people and say, if we demonstrate downtown, we might be able to get you housing. That's a little exploitative. And they could have found out about the reality anytime. You know, we were working very closely with groups that were providing housing and services. So, so that, they, they, these groups um, were really, it seems to me, what you're telling us in the early 90s were not in touch with the nonprofits um, that not only uh, were in, a, they were in ability or had the ability to do the things uh, that were necessary to put the people or pe people who were homeless. Uh, in houses and put them in houses with some responsibility for both uh, the homeless, but also for the city, uh, so that there was an exchange and, and the people that were sort of the arbiters of this were, were the nonprofits, uh, like uh, Sister Mary uh, and, and those groups. Is that, is that an accurate uh, portrayal or no? Yeah, but to be fair, everything was really moving at a snail's pace. Clearly things were getting done through the established groups, but to say to people, you know, it's gonna take years to assist these people really is unacceptable. And so the idea of shaking things up, even though it might disrupt the sort of well-meaning policies of people like me, really I think uh, was not an inappropriate approach for, uh, for these groups. And um, as they did with the uh, Street Brothers, HUD uh, would cave in um, and uh, provide some support. And maybe there were opportunities to do that. And if that was done at the expense of, uh, you know, nice guys like me, so be it. <laughs> so you were working uh, with the feds at cross purposes to, to a large extent, they were, uh, they were uh, reacting to the loudest voice in the room 
and uh, didn't really care other than to make the people go away. Well, they didn't then, but it was still tough to deal with them. But they uh, made concessions um, that we would not have made. Again, this was a difficult time. You know, there was a lot of confusion. There were no really good precedents um, for how to uh, how to deal with these problems. So, uh, in retrospect, um, there wasn't anything evil going on um, that should be condemned there was a lot of uh, confusion. And so figuring out an appropriate uh, way to, uh, to make your way through a, a very difficult time was the challenge that we all had to face. I would say, yeah, it was a tactic that, you know, came out of the 60s, either uh, through civil rights uh, demonstrations, uh, anti-war stuff, where it was a common tactic to come in and take over an office. We had earlier uh, David Fairlander show talking about taking over the University of Pennsylvania's <clears throat> president's office, advocating for LGBT rights. And um, so it's a tactic. And, and I think in the housing world, having watched it from, from my vantage point, it petered out for several reasons. One, it was unfair because you had 10,000 plus people on a waiting list who were not breaking the law and trying to, to get into PHA housing or to other types of stable housing. And the second thing is reality is that it takes time uh, to build housing and you have to be responsible. And there's a lot of HUD secretaries, a lot of PHA former directors who went to jail because they just you stole money. Right. They broke the law. I don't know if they meant to do it, but um, you know, a lot of guys were shown the door because it's difficult, hard work to do that. So John, I, I, I feel for you. I've, I can't say I've ever occupied your office or anything. I don't know if I ever sent you any stuff way back then. Yeah, the real job is you do your job and, and you probably stay in there for six and seven o'clock at night and you keep at it until you get something done. You know. Having political cover from the mayor was absolutely critical um, because again, I was a nobody and a lot of questions are being raised about, you know, the city and was the city doing the right thing and why doesn't the city doing this? Um, and uh, having, knowing that I was not going to be backstabbed or undermined really made a huge difference um, so that there was an opportunity to uh, be taken seriously and to take uh, these issues seriously, knowing that you were going to have the ability to uh, deal with them in a way that you thought made sense. So, so Rendell basically uh, came to the, to the decision that what you were proposing and what you were uh, telling him in, in the details was, we got to be patient and we got to stick to it. And Rendell's response was, go to it and I'm with you or, or something like that. Pull the city back from uh, the edge of bankruptcy. And so yeah, we had talked about it. PICA and those sorts of things earlier. Right, housing was like number 58 on his list of priorities. And the fact that he was hearing from people in the nonprofit sector and from groups like the Urban Affairs Coalition that these were the right things to do really helped as well. But again, it was a, and you guys are familiar with the book, The Prayer for the City, describes so well how crazy it was and how you know relentless the pressure um, that the city was facing was for the mayor and the key people, the city, go city government, to 
So to have somebody who uh, was, you know, reasonably reliable um, dealing with an issue with which he had no background, you know, no familiarity, really, really was a plus for him and was uh, serendipitous for people like me and uh, Noel Eisenstadt. So John, tell us the story about the Cape Heart Homes, the developing homes for homeless people down at the Navy Yard. How did that go and what was the end result? Okay, well, I hope everybody, uh, all the podsters have been to the Navy Yard. It's unbelievable. <laughs> We've urged podsters to go. It's like our Disneyland. <laughs> and it's going to be a little more diverse than Disneyland. But clearly, it's an incredible accomplishment. It wasn't so incredible, you know, in the late 20th century when it was going to close down, jobs were going to be lost. There was, again, private investment was not a likely prospect given the state of the city's economy and the opportunities that were available now. But the first uh, sort of challenge that the city wanted to address was taking title to the Navy Yard so that uh, uh, it could be redeveloped for some appropriate reuses. And so that was negotiated through the Philadelphia Industrial Development Corporation, and that's evolved to what you see now. One sort of interesting aspect to that related to housing that had been constructed, I guess, or in, during or before World War II for uh, naval base personnel. And it was a bunch of a couple of hundred bungalow type uh, structures of the kind that you might see in Anacostia um, right. across the river from uh, Washington. Washington. Really, or bungalows in the Midwest, uh, small houses on small yards, detached houses that where uh, Navy personnel and their families would live. And it was on a, an otherwise vacant site north of Penrose Avenue, west of um, uh, Broad Street. Uh, so it was a very large tract. Um, the houses were in terrible shape. They were all vacant because the Navy Yard was shutting down and rehabilitating them really didn't make any sense. They were not appropriate for uh, reuse. Um, at the time, and this may still be the case, um, there was a federal requirement that when federal properties were to be decommissioned, that um, first uh, option on the reuse of those properties would be given to programs for homeless people. That was, uh, that was unusual. And so this was a very big tract of land, very isolated, really. And you can imagine it now going down in the area near, uh, as you're going down Broad Street, approaching the stadium, and right. then turning right on Penrose Avenue, there's FDR Park, and right. that's a big expanse on the south. And then if you can imagine vacant land on the north, you know, where is the, where are the family services? Where's the child care? Where's the health care? Where are the uh, services for people with alcohol and drug abuse? Nothing was going on there. So saying, okay, we're going to build 200 units of rental housing for homeless people, really, I think, to a lot of people made no sense. And they were right. And so the alternative that we proposed that was adopted by uh, the mayor was to uh, sell that tract 
on the private market to a developer that would probably build market rate housing on it because this was in, you know, not far from Packer Park. This was a place where there was a housing market um, and use the proceeds of the sale to set up a fund like the current Philadelphia Housing Trust Fund that would consist of money that was not subject to federal re regulations and that could be used to support homeless housing ventures in any way that made sense. Uh, startup money, money for planning and design, rental assistance money, construction subsidies. And so that was agreed to and uh, the federal government bought into that and it worked very well. And if you go again down Penrose Avenue um, between uh, Broad Street and the Schuylkill, you'll see these suburban like detached houses with garages. They're pretty high priced for the most part. If you got a uh, multi-year contract with the Eagles, you might buy one of those houses because it's close to the stadium, it's close to the airport, um, it's, but it's separated from your neighbors. It's not like people are gonna come knocking on your door. And so it was very successful and still is. And it provided a lot of capital at a time when uh, capital with flexibility that was not subject to government regulations was really uh, scarce. So that was a lucky break. How the proceeds go into your budget? They went into a separate fund, which was administered by a board that included representatives of homeless housing organizations and the city. I'm curious to how the, where the money actually went. So this sort of, uh, this program with these houses sort of began in the time that the base closings and base closings were going on all over the country, as I understand it, in, in that period when the Navy Yard was being uh, <laughs> being just taken down uh, and the time that Caverner, uh, the ship company, uh, came in with the construction. So you're sort of in the in the in that uh, sweet spot, so to speak, for for development. Uh, do you think that sort of program would be viable from from scratch today? But it, it may be that all of the base closings that uh, had to happen have already happened. It may have just been a uh, late 20th century opportunity. Well, I guess it was a, a, a an opportunity that the city was able, uh, at least in their early and mid '90s, able to uh, take uh, take under its wing and 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 make uh, make something out of it. One of those rare uh, cases of uh, luck. <laughs> well, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I think we uh, talked enough about the house, but love to bring up the the North Philadelphia plan that you had sent us and all. Um, North Philadelphia, Philadelphia plan. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So published this in July of 1993. Tell us about why you picked this project and, and what happened to it. After getting the job as housing director, some decisions had to be made about, you know, what to do. Uh, what's the city going to do about all these housing issues? And the challenge for a new administration is if you don't respond and have a good response, people are gonna come in with some brilliant ideas and they're gonna push you hard to get those ideas adopted. So you better lay your cards on the table out front and stick with the, uh, the approach that you're gonna take. And that was especially critical for me 
again, because I had nothing going on um, in my background. But fortunately, you know, I had relationships with the people that I was now supervising who were very capable. And that's one thing to note about the Office of Housing at that time. It was staffed with very capable professional people, many of whom came up through the nonprofit world. So it wasn't as though I had to fire everybody and start again, but there was a need to sort of create some identity for the administration. You couldn't say, well, we'll just fund some housing programs, and then we'll fund some repair programs, and then we'll pay for some streetlights. If you do that, then you're going to be torn apart by those 17 city council members. They all have ideas about where funding could be used. And in some cases, in other cities, city council equivalents were able to carve up budgets like that and allocate a lot of it for uh, Christmas tree type projects, as a result of which there is no strategy, you know, there's no policy. So addressing that was really critical. And although uh, money was really tight, as I said, there was a lot of federal money that was coming in reliably every year. Again, not nearly enough to address citywide problems, but enough so that you could make substantial investments of public money every year. And the decision that I made, again, with a lot of help, was let's spend that money in eastern North Philadelphia, north of Spring Garden, up to the Temple main campus, in an area where there's a lot of vacancy, a lot of vacant houses and lots, but also where Yorktown is. And Yorktown is the 1960s development that was uh, launched in part by Reverend Leon Sullivan and by Bright Hope Baptist Church. That's Bill Gray. It's those, again, houses between Cecil B. Moore Avenue and the area just north of Girard, east of Broad, and they look like an older suburb. And that right. was the model that uh, Bright Hope and a private developer decided to pursue and with the support of Charles Bowser, who at that time was a deputy mayor and later became the founding director of the Urban Affairs Coalition, that development was supported by the city. And that was really remarkable because this was single family, owner-occupied housing marketed to Black people who at the time were being denied housing opportunities in the suburbs. So again, if you pass by that area, you know, east of uh, 13th Street between uh, North of Gerard Avenue up to the Temple main, main campus. Again, it looks like an older suburb, but a lot of the residents are original residents. They moved in in 1964. Um, so it was a tremendous accomplishment for Philadelphia, get a sense of how important it was at that time. So the idea was, what if we build out that area between Temple main campus and Yorktown all the way to the edge of the place where Center City is making an impact, little impact in the private sector. We'll do what happened during the urban renewal days, we'll acquire the land and we'll build new single family housing just like they did in Yorktown. We won't be as massive as Yorktown, um, but that area is compact enough so that we can really make a difference. And so now if you go north of Girard, up to Brown Street, um, I mean, north of Spring Garden, between Brown, roughly, and Poplar, and Girard, uh, and between 11th and 13th, you'll see, again, a 
uh, 1980s <laughs> or 1990s suburb in very good shape. Uh, marketed for single-family home ownership. So uh, in terms of the, the, I guess I'll call it the North Philadelphia plan, that um, also has sort of that stability that was there and then was reinforced during the 90s uh, has led to a lot of growth uh, in housing from the Temple campus south. Has that been a gentrification issue? That's, that would be an amazing gentrification issue that went from nothing to these solid housing places in Yorktown, people are now moving further south out of the temple community. Is that creating frictions now? There are a lot of other things going on. You know, Center City taking off and the expansion of the Center City housing market, Temple's enrollment growing and the attractiveness of Temple as an urban institution, the idea of an urban location being a plus rather than a negative. And the same was true with Penn, you know, uh, was not a thing that uh, a lot of people were thrilled about um, at that time. So yes, but um, one, of, uh, one of a number of factors, and I'm sure seeing these uh, attractive new houses with, uh, you know, on, built on big lots with big yards, um, with a new streetscape, influenced a lot of thinking about the future of the private market. 12th Street was a dividing line between those houses that were supported with city funding and the uh, Richard Allen public housing project, which right. began on the east side of 12th Street, south of Girard. And Carl Green, who at that time was executive director of the Philadelphia Housing Authority, liked what was going on with uh, the west side of um, uh, 12th Street. And so you'll see that what the, uh, the um, PHA development looks like on the east side is very similar, but that is uh, public housing, rental housing, owned and operated by the Philadelphia Housing Authority. There may be some home ownership there, but that area was all controlled by uh, PHA and the whole development clearly was a huge improvement over what had existed previously with the Richard Allen project. That was uh, Carl Green and, and he his did his tenure, my, my recollection is his tenure did uh, overlap with the Rendell uh, administration in the 90s. Is, is that, is my impression or <laughs> recollection off? No, he came in in the late 1990s uh, during, uh, during the Rendell period at a time when HUD had uh, taken over the housing authority as a receivership because of problems, administrative problems and corruption and mismanagement of funding. And so uh, uh, HUD took charge of the housing authority and wasn't able really to do much about the structural problems. Interestingly, the uh, person that HUD uh, assigned to uh, take charge of this on the HUD side was a, a young administrator named Michael Smirconish. Uh, <laughs> really? I had no idea about that. I just always thought he was a, 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 a sort of a, a, a political gadfly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That was early early career. I, I didn't know he actually had a real job at one point. That's good to hear. That was definitely <laughs> a real job. <laughs> so, so the plan is very specific about more than a thousand units of housing would be developed. That was the plan. 
How much of that were you actually able to achieve in, in your time at OHCD? Well, eventually that area that you can see in that report, and if you could stand it, if you go to tinyurl.com, tinyurl.com slash MSP6WNZH. Um, you can read the report, and we can repeat this at the end of the session. So that Todd, Suze, I hope you're all getting this down because this is uh, this is some interesting. These are interesting facts about the city and its revitalization in the '90s. Once we have that, and we've got the report, uh, can you give us the, the bullet points as to where where it took us? Well, I think the most important thing about the report, in terms of perspective is again at that time the city was shrinking it was depopulating nobody knew when that would end or if it would end um, i guess people felt it would end at some point but everybody was talking about you know the decline of the city and managing decline and so on and nobody was talking about a rebound and so under those circumstances for me and others including uh, people in the city planning commission and other agencies, it really didn't make any sense to build back row houses on these vacant lots. You know, the row houses were built for thriving industrial areas where you wanted to pack as many workers as you could in the vicinity of those factories that existed in North Philadelphia. You know, Stetson Hats and, you know, dozens of other factories that needed a workforce within walking distance. So the idea was that as with sets and hacks, yes, everything got made locally in a factory complex that in this case was in North Philadelphia and everything got produced by workers who lived you know, within a block or two of the factory location. By, by, by 1990s, that was all gone. That was over. That, all that, those sorts of things went to, to, to Asia for, for right. want of a better term. And so the feeling was, there's an opportunity here. We could build back with bigger houses on larger lots, give people amenities like yards and driveways, and pre create a more attractive uh, neighborhood with more amenities than you had with a you know narrow row house uh, with a pint-sized backyard. We could make something really attractive. So this was moving from a high-density model where you might have, you know, 25 houses on a block on one side of the street to a model in which you might have eight houses. So that's a lot of open space um, and opportunities to, uh, to use those amenities. The other thing about that approach is if you're building at low density, you can eat up a lot of vacant land. You can cover a lot more area than you could if you had to pay the cost of building all those row houses back mm. so that it was possible to really build out the area in low density with the limited funding that was available. These days, nobody would want to do that or almost nobody would want to do that um, because Why? smart growth emerged. And one of the smart growth principles is, you know, you really want to build out your urban core and go high density close to the commercial district and close to the downtown and provide a lot of opportunities for people to walk, not to work, well, to work downtown, but also to public transit. 
you know, right. why aren't you building more housing for people who need to walk to Broad Street or need to walk to, uh, you know, the Frankfurt uh, uh, line or to the uh, trains that can get them to suburbia. So most people uh, would not buy into that approach now. A lot of people, I think most people would feel that um, it definitely would not be the way to go now. One exception to that, interestingly, is um, the council president, John Street, who is supporting the Shireswood development plan for a big area west of Broad, is very much in favor of single family homes with driveways and parking. Um, and uh, that's uh, been, that approach has been uh, disputed by others, but he's council president. So that's what's going to happen in Sharswood. Um, and there are reasons for, for adopting that approach. But again, if you had a lot of vacant land in the area south of Girard Avenue, you would not build it out with low density housing these days. You could produce a lot more value for the city. But in, but in the 90s, um, you were a lot of the stuff in these communities, you were starting from scratch. And I think at, at or about the time Street was elected, uh, he wanted to move away from the development of Center City. And I guess, Joe, what was the name of his program, Neighborhood? NTI, Neighborhood uh, Transformation Initiative. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's what took us forward. Into, into sort of the street administration uh, was, was uh, the neighborhoods and I guess streets plan. And I don't know if it started in North Philadelphia because that's the area he represented or it went uh, citywide all at once where they were sort of clearing the land and taking those, those homes that were abandoned and uh, tearing them down. Uh, do you think and it was that was that successful in terms of cleaning up the neighborhoods and getting them ready for development? Well, they really had mixed results. And uh, I think um, John Street had a lot of courage to make that a centerpiece of a mayoral campaign. Again, at a time when a lot of people were not thinking about housing and community development as a top city priority. I mean, crime, drugs, taxes, kids, um, crime, um, the cost of doing business in the city, all that stuff were on people's minds, not so much housing and community development. And so Street's pitch, uh, which I think was very effective, was every year in city council, we budget money for demolition. Um, and every year it's not enough. We just have enough to uh, demolish the stuff that's falling into the street or stuff that is on the verge of collapse. There's lots of other stuff that never should be standing that we should get rid of. And nobody's happy with this. Uh, every year we go through the same thing and everybody is disappointed. So what, the approach that he proposed was, let's borrow a lot of money, let's issue some bonds and let's deal with everything. Let's tear down everything that's dangerous Let's tear down everything that's poorly located, you know, housing next to the rail yard um, and anything else that is getting in the way of uh, remaking Philadelphia. And in that way, we'll take care of the problems that people are concerned about because blighted properties were affecting nearly every neighborhood in the city. Plus, does, in some cases, we'll create cleared parcels. 
that will be available for new development. So that was really a great idea, I think. And it did some good things got accomplished. Some private developers did come in and work in the city based on an offer of cleared land. So that was a big plus in many ways. I think the disadvantage with NTI um, was that it should have been preceded by a plan that in year one, the uh, approach should have been, we're gonna spend this year doing a citywide plan and we're gonna make decisions about where to invest and what to invest in. Um, because that didn't happen, and because there were organizational problems within City Hall relating to who would be in charge of the plan, uh, how would that relate to the managing director and the housing agencies, there was some confusion there. Um, but the lack of a plan that said, we'll do this and not that, really uh, uh, hampered NTI more than was necessary. Having said that, I think the concept was great. Um, and the execution, I think, worked effectively in uh, uh, in addressing some important needs. John, so, how did your plan? How did your plan in in while it was being implemented during the Rendell campaign, or, or years rather, as they would transition into the street years? What happened to your plan? Did it lose steam? Did it lose focus? Did it did it get blended into NTI? Well, it was really being completed as NTO was starting, so there okay. wasn't any competition. So, uh, just to clarify, we're talking about the North Philadelphia uh, plan? North the Broadway. home North Philadelphia, which yeah. was east of Broad. Okay. Yeah. I'm, right. I'm sorry, I just want to clarify for the podsters out there. <laughs> so there was no big conflict, and it was, again, just uh, serendipitous that uh, one blended into the uh, into the next one. Yeah, so as Pete and uh, my son went to Temple, and they went to live off campus, or at least my kid did. And so they- I was lived, stuck uh, with mine. Yeah. <laughs> Although he stayed at so many places where my son was at. So West Abroad, private sector was building up things left and right and still is doing it to this day. Is that a result of NTI or any residuals from your North Philadelphia plan? Or, or is that the tenure tax abatement driving that, that development? Again, I think it's a combination of things. I think a lot of this would be happening now, but not as quickly be, um, as it did then, because then there was so much public sector investment that created a foundation for the rest of it. Uh, the influence of the 10-year tax abatement, I think, cannot be overestimated. It was so critical, and I think the advocates for cutting the value of the abatement in half really did not understand uh, how important uh, the tax abatement was to developers of affordable housing. Basically half of the value went to those types of ventures. And without that value, uh, more subsidy, more public subsidy is gonna be needed. So clearly the tax abatement played an important role, but the strength of the so-called art museum uh, market west abroad and the public investment uh, east abroad really anchored, um, plus the uh, expanded enrollment of Temple really provided some anchors for, uh, for the future, uh, future development. In, in hindsight, John, for the North Philadelphia plan, we're now talking about 30, 40 years later, is there anything you would have done differently? Well, again, in this economy, you wouldn't build low density housing in, mm -hmm. uh, in that area. It's a whole different story now. I think one 
critical opportunity that was missed was the opportunity to produce something really valuable on Girard Avenue, west of Broad. You know, if you drive down Girard Avenue, there's some stuff going on, but it's yeah. kind of a hodgepodge of things. The city had more influence over development um, because of property ownership then than it does now. So I think, uh, again, uh, lack of planning and lack of a clear policy for Girard Avenue really produced the kind of mess that you see now. It could have been uh, could have been a lot nicer. And that doesn't mean, you know, getting rid of the old stuff and bringing in uh, uh, new stuff, just doing something sensible that would create it would have created a diverse, mixed, interesting uh, commercial area. So, so John, let me ask you, we've kind of talked about where we were in the 90s, and we've kind of talked about where we have progressed to, to some degree or another, but where do you see the, the public housing going in Philadelphia? Uh, what directions and what, if any, uh, new ideas are out there that Philadelphia can or already has adopted? The exciting thing, I think this happened nationally with public housing and to a great extent locally is number one, the idea of moving from housing construction, you know, building a new so-called project to uh, just providing money, providing rental assistance, money that will make up the difference between a market rent and the amount that a lower income person can afford to pay, subject to you know, restrictions so that uh, you're not renting uh, high-end uh, luxury apartments, but just renting in a neighborhood where you wanna live. That's um, the kind of place that uh, uh, will provide a decent rental housing that you can't afford. And the money would just go to pay, to make up that difference between what you can afford, which is pegged at you know, 30% of income and the amount of the rent. That program has been around for decades. You know, the Section 8 program right. was what it was known as housing choice vouchers is I think what it's called frequently now. But th there's been much more of an emphasis on that recently, as well as an emphasis on um, joint venturing between housing authorities and private and nonprofit developers so that the funding goes, again, to pay for the operating costs of uh, apartments that may be developed entirely um, by qualified private builders or nonprofit groups. So I think just moving away from the construction project to paying, uh, making up the, uh, the affordability gap has really been important. And uh, Philadelphia will be testing that further. Uh, this was in the news recently um, and on a trial basis, uh, making available cash to uh, a, a, a group of families that uh, meet income eligibility requirements and just uh, evaluating um, how that works out in terms of how the cash is spent, whether it's on uh, paying the rent, paying utilities, providing for uh, health care, just, uh, just to see how that works. But people will tell you, and you hear this from people like council member Maria Quinones Sanchez, um, there will always be corruption. There will always be money that's wasted, um, but all you have to do is provide the money for people that need, that are in financial need. 
And for the most part, it's going to be spent in the appropriate way because they need to, uh, because of the level of need that, uh, that people have. So she said, no, she's been through that arena and knows, uh, knows how that works. So I'm glad that we're moving in that direction. Clearly, we've got to have policies. We can't just throw money around. We've got to do evaluations. We've got to have standards. But nobody's uh, forgetting that. This isn't new to anybody. The people that are working on these initiatives um, are well aware of the, uh, uh, the need to be responsible. So I'm really glad that uh, we're uh, in 2022 rather than in um, 1993 when uh, this idea, I think, would uh, never have gotten any traction. We've come a long way with that. It, you know, a lot of us who developed homeless housing you know, realize we need to raise money. It's costing us $350,000 to, to $400,000 per unit of housing. And, and that's so expensive to house just a small number of people when you could take that same amount of money and prevent them from becoming homeless by paying a couple months of rent and uh, there's a shallow rent program where it makes up the difference between what the landlord's asking for and what the, uh, the family can afford. So a lot of success with that. I haven't seen any research about that, but that's what a lot of folks are doing now. And it's really reduced the number of people coming into the housing system, the homeless system, rather. Good. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think uh, this uh, podcast has sort of given us a real strong background in, in uh, affordable housing and poverty from... Well, I, I guess we went back to John Gallery. So I guess we went back to the 70s and now we're projecting past 2022. And, and it's, it's, I think it's a good primer for people to understand where, where we were, uh, where we are and, and uh, where we're headed. And uh, there is some optimism out there that programs that work uh, kind of shine through and will be something that we can point to uh, as time goes on. But I think that Joe and I, and I hope you, John, can agree that there's been a fair amount of progress that nobody would have predicted in 1991 or 1992. Is that fair to say, John? No doubt. Uh, taking more of John's time than we uh, asked him for, and we really appreciate that, John. <laughs> John, you're working for the usual pay, right? I appreciate that you've doubled my composition for uh, this, this episode, that's gonna make a big difference. 10% of nothing. <laughs> Just one uh, commercial message, um, yeah. and this will be easier yeah. than the tiny URL thing. Uh, the website for my uh, fabulous book, Philadelphia Battlefields, yeah. uh, yes. Campaigns and Upset Elections, is um, <laughs> philadelphiabattlefields.org. And there are web pages that will link to the home in North Philadelphia report, as well as to uh, other policy papers and some intimate uh, uh, city agency memos. So philadelphiabattlefields.org is a place. And, and Joe and I have been through the book and, and we would uh, strongly re recommend it to all the podsters out there because it really sheds a lot of light on uh, this and, and other issues uh, related to Philadelphia and uh, its policies and politics too, for that matter. So uh, John, we really thank you uh, for your second appearance. Uh, and again, shedding some very pinpointed light on, on programs that I think people, 
to have some general awareness of and or none. Uh, and you've sort of given us a primer and you've seen, told us where we were, where we are now, and, and uh, hopefully where we're headed. Great. Yeah. Glad we could talk. Great. Great, John. Have a great night and uh, we'll hopefully see you around sometime.